You're listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel Hickson. For more information or to watch a live broadcast of our service, tune in at 10.30 a.m. Sunday morning at calvarychapelhickson.com. Matter of fact, the last book of the Old Testament, a book called Malachi, you can go ahead while I'm talking, you go ahead and find, find the last book of the, of the Old Testament, the last chapter, and we're going to look at the last couple of verses of the Old Testament here in just a minute. But a few years ago, while I was with Team Faith Racing, crisscrossing the country, we had a race, an indoor race, arena cross race up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And it's in the middle of the wintertime, so it's nice and cold. And, of course, up there in Michigan, it's, uh, I think it's always cold up there, right? Uh, but uh, we're up there in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And the next race, we raced on Saturday. The next race was in Sacramento, California, the following Saturday. So 2,200 miles to go on Interstate 80. So you know right there that that is going to be a miserable trip, right? Because you've got to go through Iowa and Nebraska, and there is nothing to do, there is nothing to see during those, two, during those two states. I mean, that's just two states that gives you a greater appreciation for East Tennessee, that you get to come back and you get to see green grass, trees, mountains, God is great here in Tennessee. I don't know what was going on there in, in Central America, but you got to drive through there. So I'm already not looking forward to the drive. I start out on Sunday from Grand Rapids, I make it all the way out to Des Moines, Iowa, and it is freezing cold, freezing cold. And I stopped the truck at the night at a pilot gas stop at a, at a truck stop. And uh, what I'm driving is a big Kenworth semi truck. And it's been ch- the frame has been chopped, stretched, with big motor coach on the back, big stacker trailer behind us. It actually turns out to be about seven or eight feet longer than a typical tractor trailer that you see on, on the interstate. So I'm driving this big, big truck. I stop off for the night in Des Moines, Iowa. I fill it up with fuel. I put Howe's diesel treatment in it so that the, the uh, diesel fuel doesn't freeze. Diesel tends to gel up and starts to freeze at about 10 degrees Fahrenheit. Right now it's about negative 20 degrees Fahrenheit. And so I, I fill up, I park for the night, and I do the dumbest thing that I'll never do again. I shut the truck off. And uh, I said, hey, I'm good to go. I'm going to run this generator, save fuel, you know, save hours on the engine. I'm going to run the generator, and I'm going to plug in the block heater so the oil stays nice and warm. Get up the next morning, and, and you know where I'm going, right? The truck doesn't start. And it takes forever. It's negative 20 degrees out there, and I'm fighting with it, trying to get it to start, and it took hours. I finally had a little bullet heater that you use in your garage, or maybe you've seen them at a shop. Usually they run on diesel fuel or kerosene. I had a little bullet heater that ran on propane, and I stuck it right up there in the engine compartment, right up against the uh, fuel filters to try and thaw out the fuel filters. After a couple hours and dead battery and tow truck and all this stuff, finally got it running and said, I ain't shutting that thing off again, (laughs) ever again. And uh, I, I, I head out. Now I'm behind schedule. And I'm, I'm that kind of guy. I don't know about you, but I'm that kind of guy that um, pretty laid back, easy going. But when I make a schedule, got to stick to that schedule, right? I had bikes to build. I had tires to change. I had all kinds of work piling up on me. Now I'm behind schedule, and I'm driving through Iowa. And I'm driving through, uh, you know, all the way out to Cheyenne, Wyoming. I finally make it out to Cheyenne, Wyoming. The weather hasn't improved any. It's freezing cold, negative 20 degrees, wind chill of negative 20. Stop for the night, leave the truck running, get up the next morning, and I start going. I start driving. I make it 15 miles west of Cheyenne, and the truck dies. I make it to the side of the road. I can't get that thing started. The fuel filters had frozen. What in the world's going on here? I'm like, God, I'm out here doing ministry. This is for you. I don't have time for this. I'm having a bad day, having a bad week. I call for a tow truck 
there's not a tow truck within 200 miles of Cheyenne. You, you've heard of Cheyenne, Wyoming, because if you listen to country music, because it's in a couple of different songs. Garth Brooks sings about Cheyenne, and, and you think, wow, Cheyenne must be this magical place. No, you come up this little rise, and you look off, and there's like six buildings, and that's Cheyenne. <laughs> there's nothing out there. There's two shops out there that can work on a truck. I call both of them. One of them says, yeah, we can get you in in a couple of days. I'm like, well, that doesn't help me any. The other one says, if you can get here, we can help you. Maybe. <laughs> like, well, I can't get the thing started. I finally, I finally get the fuel filters with that little bullet heater. I finally get it thawed out enough that I can idle the truck. It'll, it'll finally run and it'll idle. I did an illegal U-turn on the, on Interstate 80 and I idled back to Cheyenne. Took them seven hours to do a 20 minute job. I ended up driving all night to get into Salt Lake City, stay for the night. The next day, I make it out to Reno, Nevada. Finally, the weather has improved a little bit, you know. At, at negative 20 degrees with the wind chill, I was fighting all this stuff. And negative 40 degree, uh, that was what the actual, you know, what it felt like out there. And it doesn't matter how much you bundle up, it's cold. Finally make it to Reno, Nevada. I'm surviving. And uh, think, okay, all I have to do is get over the Tahoe Mountain Pass, and I'm home free. There's Sacramento. I'm, I'm finally going to make it. It's late at night. I pull into Truckee, California, at the base of the Tahoe Mountain, and the Highway State Patrol is pulling everybody over, and they're saying, hey, you got to get chains on your truck. I'm like, chains on the truck? For what? They said, well, it's snowing. I said, yeah, there's a, I saw a snowflake. Is that what you're talking about? I'm like, yes, sir, there's, there's snow on the mountain pass. you got to be kidding me. So I do a U-turn, I go down the mountain, I go buy $300 worth of chains, and I chain them up, takes two hours to get all the chains on the tires, start going up this mountain pass. You can only go about 20 miles an hour with these chains, you know, bouncing your way up this, up this road. It takes an hour and a half to go 30 miles to get up over this mountain pass. The whole time on the mountain pass, the most snow I saw was about an inch. There was no need for these chains. I'm like, what are you guys doing? Finally get over the other side. Finally get the downside. There's a sign that says you can take your chains off. So I pull into the, 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 uh, the, the pull-off area. I start taking the chains off of this truck. And so it, must be, it must be 31 and a half degrees outside. Because whatever snow was on the ground, it turned to slush. There was about two inches of slush on the ground as I'm fighting with these chains. And there was that one chain that would not come off. I pulled the truck forward. I pulled the truck backward. Nothing that I would do. Make th This chain was in a bind. I ended up having to crawl on my back and two inches of slush with the slush going down the back of my neck to get up under there with a pry bar and get this chain off. And the whole time, I cannot promise I didn't say a bad word. <laughs> I am fighting with this thing, and I'm just, I'm so frustrated at God, really. Because what is the point of all this? I'm doing all this for you, God. I'm, I'm, I'm on a mission. I'm not here to race dirt bikes. At the time, I was the team mechanic and truck driver and preacher occasionally. Qualified or not, there to share the love of Jesus Christ. And it just seems like obstacle after obstacle. And worse than that, it seemed like God wasn't paying any attention. It seemed like prayers were just bouncing off the stage. Have you ever been in that, that stage of life where you have that bad day or you have that bad week or you have that bad season of life? And like the prayers, they just don't go any higher than the ceiling. <laughs> Inevitably, it seems like when I'm having a bad day like that, and I finally have the courage to voice my frustrations, it seems like there's always that one person that will come up to you and say, well, you know, Jeremiah 29, 11 says, I know the plans I have for you, thus saith the Lord. They are plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And you know... 
I always do feel so much better right after I slap them. <laughs> You're not helping. <laughs> I'm down and out, and I don't understand what God's doing. Actually, what I say to them, and I've never slapped anybody for quoting scripture at me, not yet anyway. But what I do say to them is, you know, that's interesting that you would bring that up because Jeremiah 29, 11 is, is Jeremiah talking to the people of Israel saying that you are, you've been led from your homes in chains into captivity, into a land far, far away, into Babylon captivity. And Jeremiah is writing to them and saying, get used to it because you're going to be there for 70 years. Is that what you're trying to tell me? Because I would believe that because that's the kind of week I'm having. At that point, you just kind of get that look. And they say, I'll just leave you to wallow in your misery because that's obviously what you want. And you're like, you're right. I just want to be miserable because God ain't paying any attention to me. And I'm mad about it. Now, have you found, have you found that, that, uh, that, that book in the Bible there, Malachi chapter 4, last couple verses? Let me read it for you. It says, uh, this, is, this is the last writing of the Old Testament. Okay, we've got, we've got this big, thick section of my Bible here. This is what we call the Old Testament this would be the New Testament, all right? So the very last thing that was written in the Old Testament is by a prophet named Malachi. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a degree, uh, decree of utter destruction. Now, flip the page, and you're going to come over to Matthew chapter 1. And this is what it says. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, right there in the middle, when you flipped your page, your Bible probably has, just like I have right here, a blank page. That page right there, that represents 400 years of God's silence. That represents a time when there was nothing going on that we can confirm that God ever said anything to anybody. Said there's nothing written down from God. There are no prophets. There are no prophecies. I mean, for, for, 39, for 39 books in the Old Testament, we've got all these things that God has said, very specifically. Matter of fact, starting out in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, is what we call the Abrahamic covenant, which is what the entire Old Testament hinges off of the Abrahamic covenant. God comes to a guy named Abraham, says, Abraham, I'm going to do a great thing through you. I'm going to reveal myself to the whole world. I'm going to use you to do it. Three things. You're going to be the father of a great nation with lots of people. You're going to have your own land. Through you, the entire world is going to be blessed. And through the Old Testament, we read the story of God making his promises come true to Abraham. We read that Abraham had a son, who had, and that son had another son who had 12 sons, 12 tribes of Israel. They go, they get their own land. We're seeing the Abrahamic covenant come true. We're also seeing that Israel is a stubborn and rebellious nation. It seems like no matter how clear God reveals himself to them, it seems like they're most of the time not paying attention. And so God constantly warns them. He sends them prophets. Then he, they've got kings. Most of the kings are evil kings. As you read through the book of Kings, First and Second Kings and Chronicles, you read that uh, this guy was more evil than the guy before him. And then occasionally you come across a guy, this guy was pretty good. And then the one after that's more evil than the one after, before him. And, and, and it's just this com constant cycle. And so then it comes the prophets. And they're saying that if you don't straighten up, God is going to lead us into captivity. And during this whole time of the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and many other prophets, you're hearing about a coming Messiah. You're hearing these prophecies of someone that God is going to send to set the record right, who's going to rule, 
with truth and justice and righteousness. And then as we already talked about, Jeremiah says, you're going to go into captivity. Oh, now you've done it. You've gone into captivity. And then after the Babylonian captivity, you hear about Malachi. And even Malachi ends ends the Old Testament on a note of hope that there's going to come a day that God changes hearts of people. And then God goes silent for that blank page right there in your Bible. God goes silent. And you just got to wonder, well, what happened in those 400 years? I mean, was it one of those cases where the people are just so bad that, you know, if you don't knock it off, I'm going to pull this car over. (laughs) Did God just pull the car over for 400 years? And finally things got good enough that God's like, okay, I guess I'll get reengaged now. And you flip the page in Matthew chapter one, here comes Jesus on the scene. What was going on in those 400 years? You know, as you, as you read these 39 books in the Old Testament, you get a pretty interesting picture of what times were like for the Israelites. You read things about sacrifices, animal sacrifices and burnt incense and burnt offerings. And, and um, you read about priests and Levites. You read about rules and regulations, 613 rules and regulations. You read about, um, you read about prophets and kings and prophecy. And then... Then when it comes to the New Testament, it's like a completely different world. You open up the New Testament and you read about Caesar Augustus and Roman occupation and centurions and you read about marketplace activity and it seems so much more modern, actually. You've got this marketplace activity, you've got got tax collectors and toll roads and and as far as religious order, you don't have priests and, and, and Levites, you've got... Pharisees and Sadducees and the Sanhedrin. It's just like, it's almost like you've gone to a play and the, and the Old Testament comes to an end and the curtain closes and you go into intermission for 400 years. That, that's a lot of popcorn. And then you come on the scene and the curtain opens and it's a whole new stage that's been set up. And so the question this morning is, well, what in the world did God's 400 years of silence, did he just he just let things go? Did he let the world just kind of evolve until it, until it got to a point where he could, now he can introduce Jesus on the scene? There are three things that you learned in high school history class that you've already forgotten, that I already forgot until I got to looking it up. Alexander the Great, the Roman expansion, and Pax Romana. I know, enough to put you to sleep, right? But this is so cool how it works out. Alexander the Great, he's the son of Philip of Macedon, who ruled in Greece. Philip of Macedon was actually assassinated in 336 BC. Now, this this blank page right here starts about 400 years before the birth of Christ. So at 336, squarely in the middle of this blank page, Philip of Macedon of Greece, which is far to the the east of... um, or I'm sorry, far to the west of Israel, Philip of Macedon is killed. His son is 20 years old. His son, Alex, Alexander, is 20 years old. Alexander, when he takes the throne of Greece, when he takes charge of Greece, he decides to get back at the Persian Empire before them encroaching on territories for the past 100 years or so. And so Alexander goes to war against the Persian Empire. He wins. He says, well, that was pretty easy. And he continues conquering. Over the course of the next 10 years, Alexander the Great has conquered the known world. Matter of fact, you can pull up my map for me here. 
The first map is uh, of uh, Alexander the Great, that blue area there. That's Alexander the Great's territory that he took over from the, the Persian Empire and beyond. Matter of fact, at the end of 10 years, Alexander the Great had conquered most of what we know as Asia and Northeast Africa. And that was the known world. And you see there to the, uh, to the west, he didn't really worry too much to the west. There was nothing there to be concerned about. And so he just continued advancing his troops eastward. At 32 years old, Alexander the Great drank himself to death. He died of alcohol poisoning. At the time of his death, he didn't have a will. He didn't have a structure set up. He didn't have a vice president. He didn't have anybody that was going to take control of his conquered territory. He was only 32 years old. He was going to live forever. He'd get all that sorted out later, right? But he drank himself to death. He partied himself to death. And so that left this area in a state of complete chaos for the next 20 years. You had different warring factions, generals, people that wanted to take control, and nothing was really solidified until the Battle of Ipsus in 301 BC. At the Battle of Ipsus, Alexander the Great's territory was split four different ways. You can bring up the next map. It was split four different ways there, and you can tell by the different colors of the maps here of, of what territory went to whom. The one I'm worried about is in, in yellow there. That went to Ptolemy. Ptolemy ended up being the pharaoh of Egypt. And you can see that little sliver off to the right that kind of goes upwards there. That's that little country, Israel. That's right, Israel, Judea. I don't know what they call themselves. That's that little, but that's the people that we're worried about. <laughs> We've got 39 whole books of the Old Testament here written all about God's promises to Abraham and how he's making them come true. And now the world is in a state of chaos. Alexander the Great has conquered Divided it into four different sections, Ptolemy is now the one that's in charge of what we know as uh, the region of Israel. And in context, just to put this in context here, we talked about Jeremiah warning that the people would go into captivity. They go into captivity in Babylon. And then, uh, and then Babylon falls to Cyrus the Great. And you can read about Cyrus in the book of Daniel. Cyrus is actually named in the book of Daniel. That ushers in the Persian period. Cyrus actually sends some of the Israelites home. You can read about this in the book of Ezra because Ezra's the one that came back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and to establish the religious order. You can also read about Nehemiah who came back to Jerusalem to build the walls and to establish government. And so that's all happened under Cyrus's reign. And then uh, we continue. The, the Persian period falls to Alexander the Great, becomes known as the Hellenistic period. At this point in class, we are asleep with our head on the desk and drool coming out the mouth, Right. My teacher, my teacher actually in high school, she presented me with a picture on graduation day, a picture of me asleep in her class. I didn't, I don't know if we were studying the Hellenistic period very well could have been because that's about how exciting it is. But if you're starting to fall asleep this morning, it's about to get interesting because after the Hellenistic period, which is when, when uh, the Seleucids of Syria moved east and they, they're the ones that are now in charge. Of, they took the, the property from Ptolemy family and uh, there, was the, there was an uprising that Antiochus Epiphanes uh, put down and squashed. But during this time of all this, all this change that's going on in the world, there's a little nation, little nation to the west that Alexander the Great was never concerned about he said, I'm not going to focus on that little nation. But during this, during this last hundred years of all this turmoil, that little nation called Rome has been advancing and taking over the known world. And as Rome advances, and as they start to take over the world, well, they start to build infrastructure. 
that's never been done before. They start building roads, like paved roads, paved roads made out of, uh, out of stone with a, with a stone bed and paving stones on top, cemented in with sand and, and a form of cement. Some of these roads are actually still, still visible today in that region. But as they build these roads, they're able to move and advance their armies forward. They also build aqueducts so they can transport water so they can feed their army. And so they get, they get all the armies and the water and the equipment to the front lines. They conquer and they build more roads and infrastructure and they conquer and they keep on repeating. And you can pull up the next map here. And this is, this is the Roman Empire now, taking over all that Alexander the Great had conquered, taking over all the four different territories that Alexander's uh, territory had fallen into. And this is what is known as the Roman Empire. This is the height of the Roman Empire. It's interesting that as, as the Romans advanced and they built their roads and they built their aqueducts, they ended up at the peak of Roman expansion which is what you learned in school, Roman expansion. They had 250,000 miles of roads, 70 million people, uh, 70 million population. And the world never seen anything like it. In 63 BC, we're now getting a lot closer to the end of this blank page here. In 63 BC, Roman general Pompey conquers Jerusalem. And now Jerusalem is under Roman control. A few years later, 27 BC, the Roman leader was Octavian. Octavian put down a, an uprising between Antony and Queen Cleopatra. Now you thought that Queen Cleopatra was just in a Pamtilla song, Queen of Denial. Queen Cleopatra was actually a real live queen, the queen of the Nile from Egypt, right? That Pamtillus had a clever way with words. Puts down this uprising and then were introduced to Pax Romana. Matter of fact, that uprising between Antony and Queen Cleopatra was called the final war of the Roman Republic. Because after Octavian put down this uprising in Jerusalem, he said, no more war. He said, that's it. The Roman territory, it is what it is. We're not going to go to war anymore. Matter of fact, we're going to continue to try and conquer nations, but we're going to do it through economic prosperity. We are going to try. He convinced the Roman Senate and the Roman people that wealth gained in peacetime is better and more effective than wealth gained at wartime. It's called Pax Romana. Pax Romana simply means Roman peace. Pax Romana lasted for 206 years, all the way up, all the way from 27 AD. Pax Romana lasted from 27 AD all the way up through 180 AD, all the way through the writing of the New Testament and beyond. So now, with that being the backdrop of what was going on during this blank page, now the curtain opens. And now we're introduced to the New Testament. Intermission's over, popcorn time's over. Inter the, the curtain opens and we're introduced to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we had promises and promises. And, and then it seems like God goes to sleep for 400 years or he pulled the car over or whatever. God is not involved for 400 years or so it seems. The curtain opens and what do we see? We see that Alexander the Great conquered the known world. When Alexander the Great conquered the world, you know what he did? You know what his legacy is? Koine Greek. He demanded that all the nations that he conquered, that they would learn his language. His language? Since he was a Greek, his language was Greek. So all the world had a common language, Koine Greek. The Roman expansion 
the infrastructure and the roads. When Pax Romana came around, the peacetime, like we are no longer at war, Pax Romana now, we've got 250,000 miles of roads that are no longer used for troop transport. They're used as roads of commerce. You are free to travel these roads now. It was as easy to travel this Roman region as it is for you and I to drive from Tennessee into Georgia because there was peace in the land. And so the curtain opens and Jesus comes on the stage and Jesus says, God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And this message spreads like wildfire for the next hundred years. How did it spread so quickly? History has looked at this. Historians have looked and said, what is the message of Christianity? How did it spread so quickly? Common language, common language. It didn't matter what you spoke at that time. Aramaic. Latin, your second language is always Greek. What did Jesus speak? Not Greek, he spoke Aramaic. Have you ever wondered why was our New Testament, why wasn't our New Testament written in, in Hebrew or in Aramaic? It's because of Alexander the Great saying we want a common language. So the New Testament, all of our New Testament was actually written in Greek, Koine, Greek, common language. How did this message spread so quick? Well, guys like Saul and Paul Silas, Timothy, Peter, James, John, all the guys that we read about in the New Testament are traveling on 250,000 mile network of roads taking this message all the way around the Mediterranean basin there. And if you can read that map, you'll actually see some places that you probably recognize. Names like Antioch and Corinth and Ephesus and Philippi and all these little nations all around the Mediterranean basin that they're able to travel on these roads because of Pax Romana, the peace, the Roman peace that you're actually allowed to go out and do this. And now with that full understanding, now the question, I don't think that God was asleep. (laughs) I think that for 400 years in this blank page right here, I think that God was up to something. I think that he was at work. I think that he was using people and events to accomplish his purposes. People who didn't even know who he was or give him the glory that he deserved And yet God's purposes are marching forward. You can pull the maps down now. But just in case, in case there's any doubt, I want to direct your attention back a couple of books to the book of Daniel. Daniel's an interesting, we're going to look at Daniel chapter 11, just a couple of verses there. But Daniel's an interesting book because it's got some really cool stories in it. You know, Daniel and the lion's den. Who can can forget that? But Daniel's also a book of prophecy. And man, when you say prophecy, it's like, oof, man, there's some stuff in there that... I just can't figure out. I don't know. Let me tell you a thing about prophecy, okay? Prophecy is extremely useful because it confirms that God is who he says that he is. Prophecy, we can look at the book of Revelation and we can talk about end times theology. We can think about, uh, we can think about what might happen. Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins wrote, I don't know, 300 books <laughs> in the Left Behind series and, and makes for really interesting reading and some, some fiction material, which they actually say this is, this is made up kind of based on what we think might happen. But, but prophecy is extremely useful Because God says he's going to do something, and then when it actually happens, you go back and say, hey, wait a second. I think think that what happened there, I think that kind of confirms that there is a God who's large and in charge, and he's in control of the whole world, and he knows what he's doing. So Daniel, actually, Daniel chapter 10, verse 1 says, in the third year of Cyrus, Cyrus the great king of Persia, Daniel has a dream. He has a vision. 
In chapter 11, he, 14 years later, under the reign of Darius, he relates this vision. And here's, here's what he says. He says, uh, now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings, starting with, with Cyrus, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has come strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. And we read that, and we just kind of see our eyeballs roll around in our head, and we just wonder, what in the world? All you have to do is open up your history books and read about the Archimedes dynasty and the four king of kings, starting with Cyrus the Great, Cambyses, Darius, and actually you guys, you men in here, you know who the fourth king is because you saw the TV edit of the movie 300. The 300 Spartans who stood in the gap to face King Xerxes. King Xerxes was not just a made-up Hollywood. He was actually a real king who amassed, a, a, a Persian king who got a lot of wealth. By the time he got a lot of wealth, he amassed a multinational contingent to go against Greece and to attack Greece. Ultimately, unsuccessful. Made for a great movie in Hollywood, the, uh, 300. I, I highly suggest the TV edit, though, if you're going to watch that one. Um, but Xerxes, so you've got the four king of kings, so you can actually open your Bible and you read about this, and then you've got your history book. See, I grew up in school and we were taught history. Okay, and history is right here. Everybody agrees on history. You got, you got creationists and, and atheists and agnostics, and everybody agrees this is history. This is what happened in the world. We all agree on that. And then I was also went to Sunday school, and you got the Bible, and you got Bible stories. And the way that I was taught was, you know, Daniel and the lion's den and all these different things. And, 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 and there's only one group of people that agree that this stuff happened. And that would be those crazy Christians. And so we kind of get the impression that history's up here. The Bible's down here. You can't really confirm. You don't really know what's going on over here. It's, 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 it's a nice, nice little book. Maybe you can learn a thing or two for life, some platitudes. Maybe Proverbs be you know, pretty practical. But by and large, you got history and you got the Bible. And so then when you open up Daniel chapter 11 and you start reading about the four king of kings and somebody that's going to stir up all the nations against Greece, man, nobody ever told me this stuff. These two intersect? They come together? Keep reading. Verse 3, 11 verse 3. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided towards the four winds of heaven. But not to his posterity, not according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these four. Who does that sound like? Alexander the Great, man, 200 years after Daniel had a vision of exactly what would happen. During this blank page, do you think God was in control? Do you think that God knew what he was doing? Do you think that God had a plan and a purpose? It's the same today, my friends. We, we, go, we make it through. We make it through this intermission page right here and we flip over to Matthew chapter one and we read about the genealogy of Jesus Christ and that Abrahamic covenant comes to life. Abraham, I'm gonna do a great thing through you. People, land, the entire world is gonna be blessed because of you. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham, the third promise coming true and we've got a whole... New Testament, dedicated 
to Jesus Christ and the spread of the gospel because of what was set up in that blank page. Man, when I'm having a bad day and when I think that God isn't listening and I think my prayers aren't going any higher than the ceiling, that's the time to actually turn to the blank page because that's the time when you know, you know what, God? I might not feel that you're doing anything in my life. I might not think that you even care. I might, I might think that you're overlooking me, that you've forgotten me, that you don't care. But God has never given up. Never give up on the God who never gives up on you. And by the way, that story that I started out with about me driving across I-80 and having to drive through Iowa and Nebraska and all those breakdowns and my frustration, my anger at God. You know, I got over to Sacramento got over the mountain, finally get to Sacramento, did the things I needed to do. We go racing. While, while we're there, we always feed the, the racers dinner, and then we have chapel service. And that's, that's the reason that Team Faith goes to all these things. We did that in Sacramento. After the chapel service, there's about an hour break before the racing starts, before we have to get busy with, with actual racing. And during that break, the pro riders have to go out on the track, and they sign autographs for the fans coming in. The rest of us, team manager Brian and myself, the mechanic, and whoever else is there, we always go and hide in, in the, in the motorhome. We brew up some really strong coffee, nice and black. Don't ask for cream or sugar because we ain't got it. But we get some really strong coffee in there, and we just sit around for about an hour. We kind of relax. We talk, whatever it needs to be. And if you want to join us, you are welcome to join us. In Sacramento, one of our friends from Canada was hanging out with us, and we said, hey, we're going into the motorhome. Get some co- you want some coffee? He's like, yeah, I'll get some coffee. And he says to his friend, We'll call his friend Bob. Says, hey, Bob, you want to go? Yeah, I'll get some coffee too. We sit in the motorhome with these two guys and we drink coffee. And we talk and then we go racing. The next weekend, we had to go back over the Tahoe Mountain. No snow. We had to go back to Reno, Nevada. That guy, Bob, that I told you about, he's from Elko, Nevada. Elko's over here. Reno's here. Sacramento's here. Elko's about seven hours to get to Sacramento. He came over to Sacramento so that he could race dirt bikes so that his son could race dirt bikes. Then he goes home, I guess he goes home, didn't really think anything of it. We had coffee with him, that was it. Drive over to Reno, Nevada. The next week, we're doing our thing. And I'm, I'm actually, after, the, after the, uh, the, we serve the food, I'm the guy that's doing the, the uh, chapel service that night. So I'm preaching. And, uh, and this guy comes into the back of the room. And I see him, and I recognize him. I'm like, uh, don't worry about it, I'm busy preaching. Well, it turns out that, that was Bob coming into the back of the room and he goes up to Brian, our team manager, and he says, hey man, you got a minute to talk? Brian says, yeah, we're finishing up chapel here. We go get some coffee again. He's like, no man, you got a minute to talk. Brian's like, oh, let's go talk. So Brian disappears with this guy, Bob. I wrap up chapel service. I'm like, where's Brian, man? Why am I the only one tearing this stuff down? Oh well, I'm sure that he's got a good reason. Bob was talking with, Brian was talking with Bob. Turns out that Bob's son broke his arm in Sacramento and wasn't able to race anymore. Bob said, Brian, I drove here. I drove four hours to be here to talk to you. Because last weekend, when I met you guys, you and all of your crew at Team Faith, there's something about you guys. And I don't know what it is, but I need to know what it is. Because my son broke his arm. We've been putting heart and soul, blood, sweat, tears, money, resource, everything into, into this race program, and it's not working out. And worse than that, my family's falling apart. I'm at odds with my wife, my, my, my son. I'm that dad 
that's on the side of the track yelling at him and putting too much pressure on him. Everything's falling apart, but I know that you have the answer. What is it? (laughs) And Brian said, it's Jesus, brother. It's just Jesus. And Bob gave his life to Jesus right there in the rig at Reno, Nevada. And then I hear that story and I choke up with tears because that whole adversity of me driving across I-80, now it all makes sense. Who cares? Frozen fuel filters, who cares? God was doing something eternal. And we needed to be in Sacramento so that we could meet Bob so that he could come to Reno and get saved. God's plan and his purposes are always at work in your life. He created you on purpose and for a purpose. I'm going to leave you with a final verse here. This is from another prophet. I love the prophets. Isaiah 55, 9, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Let me pray for you. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the opportunity to stand up on this stage and and, uh, just share your love. Uh, You have loved me even when I've been angry at you. Even when I've tried to turn my back on you, you have continued to love me and you've continued to pull me to yourself. And I am so grateful. And it is my joy and my privilege to share that with other people. I pray that the people here will be encouraged. People that need to hear from you, people that need to, need to believe that you're real. I know that you're working in all of our hearts and our lives. And I just pray that your will be done. That even in the silence, in our, in, in our thoughts, when we think that you're silent, I know you're not. I just pray that your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen.